0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone
1: Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. So today we are going to be talking about the uh, the subject that that will not die, which is uh, cancel culture. People have said that it gets a lot of attention, which it does. I would love to stop talking about it if it didn't seem that uh, every week, uh, multiple times a week now, there seem to be parody-level stories of things that are going on. Uh, so to talk about a couple of recent cases involving the universities, elite universities, and kind of the broader background to it we have our guest today uh, Aaron Sabarium uh, who's a reporter with the free beacon and has been has written a number of articles about uh, this issue so Aaron welcome
2: to the program thank you so much for having me
1: so before we dive into uh, Yale and Princeton and um, uh, Ball State University I just threw that one in there but uh, I'm sure there's something that's happened there before we get into the specifics of all that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. If you want
2: to say your pronouns, you can do that too. Okay. Um, well, my pronouns are he, he, uh, because I refuse to be referred to in anything other than the nominative case, since accusatives and datives are inherently objectifying. Just thought yeah. accusative, out there. the accusative case is very accusatory. so... Right, right. Um, so, yeah, um, please. You, you, in fact, people may use any gender pronoun, just only refer to me in the nominative case. Um, that would be the rule. Anyway, uh, in terms of my background, uh, so I actually I went to Yale undergrad. Um, I graduated in 2018. While I was there, I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News. Uh, the same year that all the Halloween stuff happened related to Nicholas Christakis and cultural appropriation and free speech and all of that. So I was somewhat in the middle of that controversy and got to see the insanity up close kind of before it had totally colonized all of our major institutions. I suppose I had maybe a five-year advanced preview of what was going to be coming to the New York Times, uh, to the Poetry Foundation, to just about every elite culture-shaping institution in the United States. Um, and now I, uh, am a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon, where I guess you could say my beat is broadly covering woke bureaucracy and woke institutions, and in particular, the incentive structures and sort of bureaucratic mechanisms by which wokeness gains and enforces power uh i try to report on it with a bit of a more structuralist lens i think than some other people do um, and the last thing i would just say maybe by way of introduction is that well the free beacon is obviously a center right publication and people generally classify me as on the right you know i don't i don't necessarily reject the characterization but i'm also not Particularly wedded to it either. I mean, I think that I'm more interested in preserving a kind of small l liberalism that I see as to some extent under threat from both sides, although I'm probably more concerned or at the very least more viscerally appalled by the threats to it coming from the left. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm not really like a Republican partisan or anything. In fact, I don't really like the Republican Party. Uh, it just happens that my job involves chronicling left-wing insanity. Um, so that's what I try to do in albeit a more intellectual way.
1: Okay. All right. So let's, let's start <clears throat> with Yale. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's been going on at uh, the, na- is it, I think it is Yale the number one law school or it's, is it number two? I, yeah.
2: I mean, I mean, I think a lot of rankings put it at number one, but even if they don't, it's, it's reputation is that it's number one. It is, it is more competitive than Harvard It's more competitive than Stanford and Chicago law. Uh, it's really considered a cut above basically every other law school in the country, or at least that has historically been its reputation.
1: Okay, so yes, uh, so what's what's going on at
2: Yale Law School? Uh, well, I'll try to summarize the basic story very quickly. So a uh, student who was a joint member of the Native American Student Group and the Federalist Society sent an email inviting students to a happy hour at his, quote, trap house. That's how he referred to his apartment. The email elicited nine discrimination harassment complaints in under 12 hours. People alleged that the use of the term trap house was racist and indicated that he was planning a blackface party. They also noted that he had said that Popeye's chicken would be served, uh, which apparently was a racist reference to the trope that black people eat fried chicken. Somehow they made that association, even though The reason they were going to serve that food is just Popeye's was like right next to their house. Um, so the student gets hauled into this meeting with two Yale law administrators who tell him that his email was triggering and offensive. They add that his peers were very triggered by his association with the Federalist Society, which of, of course, obviously is oppressive to uh, all sorts of different communities. They said that exactly. Um, and so then they proceed to threaten his career, uh, or at least imply that they're threatening it by reminding him that there's a bar exam he has to take, that the legal community is a small one, that um, you, know, you don't want this hanging over your head when you leave here. And the best way to make it go away, they tell him, is to write a pre-drafted apology, Uh that the administrators drafted, uh, which, you know, read something like, I apologize for the pain and trauma I have caused. I am working to actively educate myself so that I can do better really read like a parody. So the student records all of this secretly, um, and shares it with the beacon and we publish a report on it and also release pretty much the full audio uh, and then there's a huge uproar about it and even liberal law professors and Washington Post columnists say this is outrageous, this is going way too far, compare it to Mao's China, etc. Um, so Yale has been doing damage control for the past couple weeks because of this report. Um, and without giving anything away, uh, I expect that they will only be doing more damage control in the coming weeks.
1: So I did. Li- I, I listened to part of the recording. I was not able to make it through all of it. And there's a uh, a lot of jaw dropping moments in the recording. But one of the ones that I found particularly strange is, as you note, you know, they say that uh, all of this was made um, was either exacerbated or it was an independent charge. Just that. Um, he was having this party in conjunction with the Federalist Society, which is like a racist, oppressive organization. And, you know, I looked and and the Federalist Society has a chapter at Yale. It's like an official club or whatever. So it just seems like kind of weird that they're they're like, oh yeah, it's this racist organization that is, you know, one of our, right, you know, we one sponsor. of our formal sponsored clubs on campus, you know, yeah. and and, um, and probably probably about five members of the U.S.
0: Supreme Court, I would, I would, and I would assume that it is going to include Clarence Thomas, are probably all members of the Federalist Society.
1: Yes, I, yeah. I would imagine that actually all all of the Supreme Court current Supreme Court justices have spoken at Federalist
2: Society events. Right. I would think uh, so. Yes. Yeah. Even uh, well, that, and that, know, that's the other thing it, it's a pretty ecumenical group people act like it's this super far right club you know my sense is that these days on campus it basically en- encompasses anyone who's just slightly right of center which you know at yale basically just means you're not a communist like really the bar is pretty low and yeah you know you have some trump appointees who were in federalist society like bar which triggers liberals but it, it, is, it is, It is. as far as right-wing organizations go, it's probably about as anodyne as it gets.
1: Okay, so uh, that's that's number one. Um, Popeye's chicken, bad. Um, uh, I'm too old to know what a trap house is, but apparently that's bad. Fellow Society, also very bad. There's also, I mean, there are so many of these incidents, uh, I feel like a, we're just kind of picking them at random, but another recent one involved a professor at Princeton. Do you want to give us a little background about that case?
2: Uh so I mean I know less about that one, so I'm I can't go into as much detail, but I will just say there was I think it was real clear, I had a report on this. Um basically it sounds like some people in Princeton's, you know, Office of Equity and Inclusion doctored a webpage or or like doctored a quote from a Princeton professor to smear him as racist. Um, And this is the same office in charge of handling harassment complaints. So, you know, they like a bunch of professors, I think, wanted to essentially file a harassment complaint against the people who, you know, doctored this guy's quote, and tried to smear him as racist. But of course, the people who had done that were themselves in the harassment office, uh, which sort of just goes to show that these harassment bureaucracies are not neutral at all. They are stacked with left-wing ideologues who, of course, uh, have a particular agenda. Um, And that dynamic at Princeton... Also played out at Yale in a in a slightly different way, insofar as the complaints against Trent Colbert all went to the Discrimination Harassment Office. And in relaying the complaints so sympathetically as to almost constitute an endorsement of their content, the Discrimination Harassment Office basically conveyed to the student that his speech constituted discrimination and harassment, that is, that his speech was illegal, that it was unprotected speech in violation of the Civil Rights Act, um, an impression that would have only been bolstered when those same discrimination and harassment coordinators emailed his entire class about the incident and condemned the email publicly as racist. Uh, so you see that these harassment bureaucracies are essentially just labeling Protected political speech, like membership in the federal society, as harassment, and then themselves trying to harass conservative students on that basis, or conservative professors, as the case, maybe. So, just to sort of drill down on the, on that for a moment, and and maybe
0: this is a little bit unfair, since you're, uh, I sort of take it your role as sort of being an objective reporter about this, as opposed to a columnist or, or heaven forbid, a, a legal an, analyst or something along those lines. But it seems to me that there's, you know, there's steps along the way of, you know, sort of this travesty here. And, 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 you know, there's, there's at least initially an aspect of if there is this bureaucracy in place and they receive the, uh, they, they receive the complaints, it's, it's not necessarily where something goes wrong at that first step where they receive the complaint and then they notify uh, Trent Colbert about the complaint, because you would think in a private institution that in like Yale, there's at least a role for the administration to say, you know, dear student, we want, we want you to know that we have received complaints about your comments. We want to apprise you of this. And then, you know, you respond how you're going to respond. Obviously, they went far beyond that. But I think that, you know, I kind of want to make that point. You know, there's there is a role, I would think, you know, particularly in a private institution to at least the administrators and and maybe and I think they took a totally different approach, but they could have been the mature ones in the situation and actually uh, try to bring about some understanding, but they went way beyond that. Cause they, like you said, they went into sort of beating down Trent. Is that how you, how, is that how you would yeah.
2: see it? Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I would even add that. Well, yes, there's a role to maybe they could have just relayed that these complaints were, were char- levied against him, but you know, just said, respond to every easy fit. I, I think what they should have done at a minimum was say, these complaints were levied against you, but don't worry, it's protected speech, you won't get in trouble. And they didn't do that until a month after this started. And, you know, a few weeks yeah. after they condemned him as racist, uh, publicly, it was class. Um, right. You, and
0: it, it seems to me that part of that part of that conversation, too, is is probably a, a peacemaking. I mean, if they're trying to uphold yeah. community standards, that they could actually be relaying this to the people that are making the complaints that we've heard you, we understand this. And, you know, we want to assure you that we are, we're going to listen to you, but we also have to uphold our students' legal rights and their right to free speech. Right. You know, so that would have been, yeah, they should have they, been doing they, that as well. They
2: could have done that, but, but I, to be completely honest, I would have gone further and like, like they really shouldn't have even dignified this. I don't think they should. I mean, I mean the complaints were so absurd that they shouldn't have said, "Oh, we listen to you, we hear you in a way that implies these were legitimate things to be upset about because they really weren't. Um, and well, and if and if the university is going to be in the business of handling this kind of thing and in the business of making moral pronouncements or taking moral positions of any kind, I'd like it to take, Reasonable ones, and the idea that it is reasonable to be offended by membership in the Federalist Society or by the use of the term trap house or by uh, serving fried chicken at a party is wrong and insane. And in an ideal world, I think the administrators would have communicated to the student complainants quite clearly that their views were wrong and insane. You know, you can be polite about it, but like, it shouldn't just be, oh, we hear you, you know, we're so sorry you felt offended, but we can't punish your speech. It should be, guys, grow the hell up, go to class. Like, that's actually the appropriate response. Yeah, and I think I, I, don't, I don't
0: necessarily disagree with that, except that, you know, Yale's in the business of education, and I think there could have been a, an educating moment there. Of you know, re- you know, relaying to both sides. Look, we're 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 here. We're 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 accepting your complaint. We're relaying your complaint, and then giving Trent an opportunity to speak for himself if he chooses to. Because after all, he's in training to be a lawyer, so the, he's going to be speaking on behalf of people about their legal rights. And that, I guess, sort of draws me to um, his statement. Talk about his statement a little bit, and you know, I think that he starts his. His explanation of why he didn't back down—he starts by saying, "I may never practice law because of this." But I actually read it. And I'm thinking, this guy is ready to be a lawyer. Uh, this guy actually understands that sometimes there's some murky situations, the facts are unclear, or somebody's been, uh, you know, maligned. But the role of the lawyer is often to go and actually, you know, you know, face to the wind. You go and you defend your your client's position and their rights. And I thought he did a wonderful job.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think his his the op-ed he wrote for Persuasion after this was very good. Um, especially important was his point that when you apologize for something you didn't do wrong, uh, you legitimize the cancel culture mob, and that's bad. And so those who oppose, cancel culture, wokeness, all this stuff, really should not apologize when they're the target of these smears. Obviously, if you do something apology-worthy, you should uh, by definition, but this was not an apology-worthy email, and so, you know, kudos to him for not giving in. Um, I also think there's another point here, which is that had he issued the apology under duress, and he was certainly under duress, it would have Uh, vitiated the whole meaning of the apology because, you know, it it wouldn't have been sincere, right? He only did it because he was basically being, he would have only done it because he was being held hostage. Um, Which just goes to show, I think, that when these forced apologies are demanded, the point isn't actually to have some kind of resolution or for people to move past it or to feel like they got the apology they deserved. It's to simply legitimize the cultural power of those demanding the apology um, and to kind of force um, anyone who might challenge their power into submission. Uh, So I think it's great that he refused to play along with that game. Totally agree. So let's talk a little bit about
1: how we got here because it does seem uh you know i'm doug and i are uh, quite a bit older than you are aaron <clears throat> i actually remember speak the speak for yourself yes right yeah yeah i actually remember uh the 1990s and of course in the 1990s it's not like there were no controversies, especially on campus about this person, you know, said something, other people were offended, uh, you know, accusations of, uh, racism, et cetera, et cetera. But it certainly does not, uh, appear to me to have been anywhere near the level that we have today. Uh, in fact, you seem to have had a kind of uh, explosion in these sorts of cases, which I don't think is just a matter of more reporting or like wider publicity on it. And so what do you think is driving that? How did we get uh, to this place where, um, you know, it's not I don't think you could say like, oh, we're talking about a few isolated incidents, uh, there seems to be, uh, kind of like a,
2: a constant barrage of this sort of stuff. Obviously there are a number of explanations and this is overdetermined, but I will elaborate one that I think is under discussed. And that is the role of civil rights and in particular anti-harassment law in incentivizing a kind of grievance mongering culture. So what's happened to universities, but really what's happened to all private institutions, is that they're subject to a legal asymmetry. Uh, They're not bound by the First Amendment. They can censor the speech of any of their members. That's fine. But they are bound by anti-harassment law. So they are legally liable if harassment persists in their institutions and they could have stopped it but didn't. So because of that, uh your, schools like Yale have set up these sprawling diversity of bureaucracies to handle harassment claims in part as a form of compliance with civil rights law. And it's important to emphasize that civil rights law, kind of beginning in the 90s, went through a bit of a transformation, um, which may be why these cases have exploded since then. Um You know, in like the early 80s, you got the Supreme Court saying that harassment had to be severe and pervasive enough to create a hostile work environment to, uh, create legal liability. Um, and that sounds like a pretty, uh, demanding standard, but starting in the 90s and then over the course of the 2000s, uh... What counts as severe and pervasive and what counts as a hostile work environment is interpreted in wider and wider ways, both by the courts and by government agencies, including the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And that means that private institutions like Yale uh, faced increasing pressure to deal with these harassment complaints. Um, and, and make sure that they were dealing with them. Um, and also, you know, they were aware that more and more things could constitute harassment. So that created a legal incentive to build up these bureaucracies. Um, and the result's been this bureaucratic imbalance of power within all our institutions. Um, to wit, there is a huge bureaucracy dedicated to handling and prosecuting harassment claims but there is no bureaucracy dedicated to enforcing, um, and protecting freedom of speech. Uh, now maybe that asymmetry is okay in a big corporation where you just don't think freedom of speech is that important, but in a university where the whole point is debate and discussion and academic freedom is this cardinal virtue that, that asymmetry and bureaucratic power is, uh, a real problem. um, Because even if a school like Yale has really robust free speech policies on paper, and Yale does, it doesn't have a bureaucracy that's going to actually enforce the policies. And it does have a bureaucracy that will enforce the harassment policies. So what happens? Well, the harassment policies um, get enforced, you know, over-enforced, often against disfavored students, uh, like those in the Federalist Society. And there's just no really, there's no real countervailing bureaucratic pressure to protect free speech. Um, I think that's what happened at Yale is kind of a microcosm of this uh, tendency, but you can see it at Princeton, you can see it at all sorts of other universities, Um, you can really see it in most of the institutions that have gone woke. There are concrete legal and financial incentives. For them to go woke, and there's not really any incentive in the opposite direction. And the last thing I would say is that, while you might think, okay, well, we just have to get rid of that asymmetry, maybe we just reinterpret anti-harassment laws, it's a little more narrow somehow. Even if you could do that, there's still a problem, which is that the bureaucracies have already been set up and entrenched, and once they're entrenched, they have an incentive to kind of manufacture new grievances and then to solve those grievances in very, uh, heavy handed public ways. Um, and you saw this at Yale where the diversity director explicitly says in that audio, I don't want to make our office look like an ineffective source of resolution when he's explaining to the student why he should really write this public apology. Uh, so unless you kind of deinstitutionalize these bureaucracies, uh, it's very, very hard I think, to solve this problem, um, because ultimately, it's a problem of incentives. And yeah, it, it all it all goes in one direction. Um, and I don't know exactly how you would use political power to reverse that direction. But clearly, the status quo is not sustainable if you care about things like academic freedom.
0: Well, that's that is a wonderful segue that you just used the words academic freedom. Because on my uh, on my computer screen, I have a uh, I've, I have pulled up William F. Buckley's 1951 book called "God and Man at Yale: The Superstitions of Academic Freedom," and it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting to think how we're we're 70 years later and we're having a somewhat related debate, and at this point, I would say what we're describing as sort of a conservative, classical liberal position of trying to preserve freedom of speech, but also as you just use the word academic freedom, it was actually Buckley back starting the, what, what was sort of the modern conservative movement, some would argue back with this book of God and man at Yale. And he was sort of, lampooning the concept of academic freedom saying it was really just a masquerade because the school uh, was trying to force uh, secularization on the students. Um, So in some sense, I don't mean to get too meta, but it's, it's almost as if we've, there's this, uh, conservative liberal, uh, divide has you know, lasted for at least the last 70 years. I'm sure it was there before, but we're all just kind of picking and choosing our, uh, our rubrics of, you know, are we, are we in favor of academic freedom now? Or, you know, are we switching sides and we're lampooning academic freedom? So it's just, I don't know that I have a question for you there. It's just an interesting, as soon as I saw this topic, I immediately, my mind was drawn to the, to the Buckley. Yeah.
2: Well, so Buckley obviously was not pro-academic freedom because he thought that it was used or the, the sort of manure of it was used to persecute Religious and conservative ideas. Um, right. In a sense, you could even see Buckley as making a kind of ideological version of Marxist critiques of capitalism, where yes, there's ostensible freedom, economic or academic, but the eventual invisible hand mediated results of that freedom are a kind of economic or academic tyranny of one particular class in society. Um, I guess I would just say there is something to that critique, but I think it misses a, the role that government policy has played in incentivizing wokeness, but B, um, yeah, academic freedom is not perfect, but also what's the alternative. Um, I don't think that any kind of explicit deviation from the norm of academic freedom is going to benefit conservatives. Uh, and frankly you know even if it did like we don't really want our universities to just censor liberal ideas like that would be a bad thing um i think there's a difference between censoring liberal and left-wing scholarship and choosing say not to fund or at least at a public university say like the state chooses not to fund or accredit gender studies departments because they regard gender studies as pseudoscience like that i think i would i would probably support but uh in general, yeah, you know, it is it is hard to really play this game where you, like, try to just explicitly punish particular ideas. I, ju- I just don't see how you can really do that for long without it ending pretty badly for the university.
1: A number of writers have talked about this recently. Richard Hanania, who has been on the show has written about this. Christopher Caldwell in his book, Age of Entitlement, I think touches on some similar themes. The question that I have is, you know, civil rights, uh, The civil rights law has been around for a while, uh, even with the, some of the developments in terms of uh, judicial or other, judicial decisions about hostile environment or setting up bureaucracies or whatever. That's not entirely new, it does seem like there has been much more of an explosion of this sort of thing recently. Mm -hmm. So I I was just curious, I mean, is it just a slow burn? Uh, Is there some other factor going on? What do
2: you think? No, it's a good question. Um, I don't totally know. I think some of it may be a slow burn. Some of it, I think, is that once these bureaucracies are sufficiently institutionalized um, and established, then they kind of take on a life of their own because they have an incentive to sort of justify their existence by manufacturing grievances. And that, especially, I I would add, in sort of the absence of overt racism and discrimination. And, you know, that absence was not... That absence wasn't a thing in like probably the 70s and 80s, there just was more overt racism. So, you know, as overt racism declines, the kind of warrant for these institutions almost has to shift to rooting out more subtle, insidious forms of racism. So I think some of this is precisely that the civil rights movement actually really did succeed in inaugurating through both grassroots activism and kind of top-down, coercive bureaucratic pressure it did succeed in affecting mass cultural change, I think, broadly for the better, right? Um, it's good that overt racism and sexism are no longer okay. But the more not okay those become, and the more stigmatized they become, and the more rare they become due to that stigma, the more pressure there will then be for their these entrenched bureaucracies to shift focus to new and more kind of fantastical moral crises. Um, so I think that... It, it's it's one of these paradoxes where you know the the sort of failure or the or the degeneration of the thing is precisely due to the thing's origi- original success. Um, now that said, I mean I also would just say that there, you should acknowledge some autonomous role for ideas, um, autonomous causal role. And while I'm a little skeptical of these explanations, it would not surprise me if. Um, you know, social media and some other technological pressures has have somehow made people more fragile. You know, this is kind of the Jonathan Haidt argument. I also think that the other effect of technology is to uh, make transgressions more immediate and visible to large numbers of people, kind of panoptic effect of social media, which probably interacts with that coercive bureaucratic architecture in an unhealthy way like the civil rights you know civil rights reporting mechanisms uh were created pre-internet um and now you know in just the past really really since the turn of the 21st century it wasn't until then that i think like you know the internet started to really affect the way that these civil rights bureaucracies and harassment bureaucracies worked Um, so those are just a few of the possible explanations for why, as you say, you know, it's not like civil rights law created wokeness overnight. And in fact, it doesn't, you know, anyone who wants to go with the theory that civil rights law played a causative role here does have to acknowledge that clearly it it only causes this either on a very long time horizon or, and this is what I think is more likely um, in conjunction with other technological, cultural, uh, and legal um, variables, which are more recent. Yeah,
0: and, and, and Josiah's brought this up before too. I think there's a there's another aspect that is really missing in this whole cancel culture too. Is just good old fashioned grace of just we you know we we have to we have to be ready to. Understand that people say things they make, they make stupid jokes, like the stupid joke that I'm that, that this podcast is never going to hear that I'm going to delete from earlier in the show. You know, you have to have the ability for people in a, in a society if we're going to continue living in a peaceful society, people have to forgive each other and they have to be ready to move
2: on. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would, uh, well, I was just going to say quickly, Josiah, I also think that uh, social media has made that harder um, for reasons that. My friend Charles Payne Lehman has talked about, uh, chief among them, that uh, now there is a kind of immortal digital record of everything you say online. So it's just harder to forget and forgive, with forgetting often being kind of a partial prerequisite for forgiveness. Right, moving past something because it, it's just, it's immortalized. It's always right there in your conscious. The the bad tweet. It's searchable at any moment. Um, So that there may be a kind of a technological explanation for that uh, decline in grace. And perhaps there's also a religious explanation just about secularization and, you know, the erosion of certain Judeo-Christian mores that kind of enable the more forgiving culture. That one's maybe a little more hand-wavy, but, you know, I do think there's probably some truth to it.
1: Uh, yeah. So I, I definitely agree with that. I, I will say that, you know, one thing about a lot of these cases, unlike Doug's horrible, horrible joke is that, uh, I don't like this Yale thing, for example, I don't think grace is really, uh, necessary because, uh, you know, the guy didn't say anything wrong. Right. <coughs> um, <coughs> with, yeah. Um, so I did, I did have, uh, One question. So you, earlier you were talking about, well, maybe the answer is, uh, to counterbalance the anti-discrimination bureaucracy, we need to have a comparable free speech bureaucracy. And, uh, that's interesting. I don't, I don't, could you flesh out what, what exactly would that look like? What does that, you know? Well, yeah. So,
2: so I don't actually know exactly what it would look like and it may just be something that we Aren't realistically gonna have. Um, and I'm sure any proposal to create one will be subject to all sorts of objections. But you know, I, I think um again, as I say it, I can already think of all the problems with this. But maybe you try to pass some law that like says you know universities are supposed to be places for the dissemination and production of knowledge. Academic freedom is important for that, and so. With the exception of religious universities, uh, you know, all kind of secular universities will be required to um, essentially adopt close to First Amendment free speech protections internally in order to continue receiving federal funding. I don't know if that would work, but that, um, that seems like kind of conceptually the right the right direction. Um, or, look, if, if you don't think there's any way to do this legally, you may just need kind of civil society groups to try to incentivize it. I think that's going to be kind of tough to do um, as long as there's no legal mechanism to hold universities accountable for censoring speech. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say is just the, 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 the zooming out, you know. The the bigger approach here, I would say, don't think of it so much as needing a countervailing free speech bureaucracy. Think of it as the the costs of censorship have to exceed the benefits. So right now, um, there are a lot of potential benefits um, in the form of avoided lawsuits to censorship and almost no costs. This was a rare case in which I think now there are costs because the media reported it and people are mad at Yale. Um, Really what has to happen is the costs, not only do the costs in any given instance have to exceed the benefits of censorship, but the costs have to be somehow institutionalized and regularized, right? Like it has to be just a constant risk that if universities censor people, they will you know, be on the subject of some kind of loss or, uh, face really, really negative PR. Um, and I think it's going to be hard to kind of create that sort of symmetry and incentives, but that's ultimately what needs to happen. Like, I I mean, and people always joke, you know, well, donors should just stop giving money. I think the issue is they don't actually do that enough empirically for it to make a difference. But like, ideally, yeah, you know, I, I hope that people actively try to punish Yale financially. And as far as I'm concerned, no one should give them a cent until they apologize to this kid. Um, You know, because otherwise why would they change how they work?
1: Okay. So final question. We often ask our guests to name a favorite movie, TV show, other cultural product related to the subject of the conversation. So, do you have a favorite uh, cancellation movie or cancellation TV show or something
2: related to this? I don't know about a TV show or movie related to cancel culture. Could I recommend Could I recommend a book? If you must. Well, okay. So it's not even a novel. I'm sorry. But um, it's called The Ironies of Affirmative Action. And it's by John David Scranton. Um, and the book talks a lot about the development of affirmative action policy in the federal government. Um, but two, two things that I think are, are interesting, uh, takeaways from the book. One is that the tendency of civil rights bureaucracies to focus on outcomes rather than intentional discrimination began in the seventies when it just became administratively impractical, to try to arbitrate case you know claims of conscious discriminatory intent and a lot of the focus on say like soft quotas or affirmative action a lot of this was just you know what well, we need some objective metric to show that anti-discrimination laws are working um so we will look at uh outcomes and quotas and things like that and that even though they officially call it quotas um what that does, I think, in relation to cancel culture is it kind of inaugurates this shift from thinking about intent to thinking about impact. And that is, of course, central to a lot of these cancellation cases where it's the intent that the, the impact that matters, not the intent. So even if you didn't mean it that way, well, you know, black students complain. So it's a problem. Um, there's kind of a bureaucratic logic there, um, The other interesting thing about the book just that I find funny is, um, one of the reasons that we institutionalized affirmative action in the federal government is that Richard Nixon actually pushed for this as a way to win over black voters while owning the libs and the way in which affirmative action would own the libs, he thought was that, uh, unions because of these entrenched seniority systems wouldn't like affirmative action since it would kind of disrupt their whole hiring procedures. Um, so it's like a great plan. Like, you know, you give something to black voters, um, you know, you signal that you're not racist, uh, but you also screw over the libs. And of course it totally fails. Um, it pisses off a lot of people. Uh, it doesn't actually help them win black voters. And all that happens at the end of it is that affirmative action is institutionalized in federal government and, the sort of civil rights bureaucracies to which Nixon had been kind of hostile, just grow in power. Um, you know, so there's a cautionary tale there, there maybe about, uh, not trying to resist cancel culture simply by owning the libs, because sometimes your attempts to own the libs can spectacularly backfire and completely screw over your own political.
1: All right. Thank you very much for joining us today, Aaron. And uh, I will just at the end, you know, I haven't done this in, in uh, a really long time, but um, I am again asking you uh, listeners, if you've made it this far, if you like the show, please give us a review and a five star rating on whatever the platform is that, that does that. I don't think there's any 10 star systems or anything, but um, thank you very much for joining us and see you again soon.